0: Blaise Pascal, the 17th century Christian philosopher, said, All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit in an empty room quietly and alone. Is he overstating that? All of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit silently, quietly in an empty room alone? Silence is the absence of noise and distraction. Uh, alone is the absence of people and relationships where you're now left with just you and the empty room, of course. No stuff, no distractions, no entertainment, just you. And when it's just you, the terror that we feel is emptiness because we often don't feel sufficient in ourselves. We often don't feel confident in ourselves. We often don't actually like ourselves. So we get very good at filling the room of life with stuff, with thoughts, with activities, because we want to create, if not for others, at least for ourselves, an image of ourselves that we can live with. And one of the weird things right now in the world is the, empty, the emptiness we see everywhere, Right now, of course, I'm starting to get used to this, but I am in an empty room. And there are two, three people in the sound room and three people in the very back row. We're totally social distancing here. Um, Churches are empty. But also, Angel Stadium is empty. The Honda Center is empty. The Staples Center is empty. Uh, shopping malls are empty. Movie theaters are empty. And when you look at other photos online of what's going on around the world, places that are you're used to seeing so packed with people, it's spooky to see them empty. Places like Times Square in New York Empty places like Venice in Italy, where you used to see the canals full of uh, gondolas, and you see the streets crowded, the narrow little streets crowded with tourists and the plaza of St Mark uh, just full of pigeons and people it 's all empty. Uh, the Spanish steps in Rome completely devoid of people, and these are places i 've been to myself, so to see them in photographs very differently than the way I saw them it just it hits you the emptiness that's going on in the world and yet here we all are forced to be in a sense stuck with ourselves in our homes and we don't get to fill them with stuff anymore because a lot of places are closed we do get to fill them with distractions but here's the question i'm wondering is how are we doing with this space that god's given us to sit if you will quietly and alone in an empty room and what are we discovering as we do so what are we seeing about ourselves what attachments are we finding out that we hold on to too tightly or the stuff or the ideas or the titles or the 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 relationships we connect with that we rely on for giving ourselves some sort of definition or identity? What have you found when you separate these things from your life? And what have you found left? These can be haunting questions. And I'm thankful to hear that for some of us, these questions are being addressed, and we're finding, ironically, we're finding in the emptiness a fullness that we didn't know existed Because the stuff of life had suffocated those things from us. So I want to look at this psalm and read it. And there's a specific part here that's just, for me, it's sort of been the echo of the week in my heart. Psalm 125. We are now on the sixth of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. And this sixth one um, comes after, well, to review. Step one was God. Our ascension begins with God. And we say yes to him and no to the world. Step two reminded us to walk. We must walk with God. Step three, we, we deepen our journey through worship. Step four was grace, in which we find the power or the sustenance of our pilgrimage. Step five was help, where we discover where help lies. That was last week, and it's, of course, in the name of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. And now tonight, Psalm 125, is step six, and this one is peace. One of the most important steps we can discover on this journey is that even in emptiness, we are not alone. We are not abandoned. And we do not have to let the sense of hollowness, the sense of neglect, the sense of I don't like who I am, we don't have to let that emptiness frantically drive us to do impulsive and crazy things and to gain stuff we don't want and to hang out with people who are not good influences and to say things about ourselves that aren't true all because we're trying to instill within ourselves a fabrication of a fake veneer of peace that doesn't actually penetrate deep within and so on this step we're going to discover peace so psalm 125 the scriptural title says a song of ascents Verse 1, those who trust in Yahweh are like Mount Zion. That, of course, is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. How are we like Mount Zion? It says, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Mount Zion cannot be moved, it abides forever. Those who trust in Yahweh are like that mountain. Verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. 4, verse 3. The scepter, that's of course the symbol of power, the staff of power a king would hold. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong verse 3 is saying wickedness is not going to forever rule over the land given to the righteous there's a temptation for the righteous to be pulled into the ones that have power oh everyone else is doing it reach out for this It doesn't have to happen because the customs and manners and ways of living that the world are doing right now are temporary. They won't last. The so-called rulers and how the system works, we don't have to buy in. We don't have to reach out for that. This psalm is saying that this will not last because the land ultimately belongs. The kingdom will ultimately be given over to another people. Verse 4. Now there's a choice given to us. Do good, O Yahweh, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. The New Living Translation puts upright in their hearts as those who are in tune with you. I like that. So to be upright in heart doesn't mean you're a stiff person who's always looking down on everyone. That's not the image we want in our minds when we hear upright. We want to to hear someone who is in alignment. If God is playing um, the E chord, we are playing the E chord or one of its harmonies, right? We are in tune with him. Now, the other option. So we either um, align ourselves with him or, verse 5, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, I know we're playing in that key, but I think that F augmented, sharp, to the third, whatever, is the way to go. Um, Great, you're special, but here's your warning. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, Yahweh will lead away with evildoers. So that's not a good path for you. And I'm laughing because Sarah Lehman was laughing, I think, at my attempt to make a complicated chord structure. And it was all in my head at one time, but it's, you know, been a while since I've been doing music theory. (laughs) Uh, So, you're with me. Um, And then the psalm ends with, Peace be upon Israel. And that there is where the psalm is inviting us to the step of peace. Now, do you remember how... Earlier in this series, I would say there are 15 psalms of ascent, first of all, because there are 15 steps at the temple, um, at least at that time, in which you would climb to the temple on the 15 steps. And so these psalms are meant to mimic, we are going to the temple, here are our 15 steps. But also, because the Aaronic blessing or benediction, it's in Numbers chapter 6, and you know it very well if you've been with our fellowship for any time, it goes like this, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you uh, and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That benediction, that blessing, in the Hebrew language, has 15 words. It's not just a coincidence that, oh yeah, okay, we're going to that 15 words with the 15 psalms. Up. They must be a, an apparent connection. It goes deeper than that because these 15 psalms, 12 of the 15 of these 15 psalms, take lines from that blessing and scatter them throughout. So that as the pilgrims are singing these songs and walking these steps, they are anticipating and blessing one another with the blessing they'll receive when they get to the temple. It's beautiful, the connection here. And when we read this last line of the psalm, Peace be upon Israel. that's also the last line of the blessing, and may the Lord give you peace and so here you hear it echoing there and so we want on this step peace because in a world that is being emptied and when we discover the emptiness in our own lives, there can be an angst in that, oh my goodness, I don't like this, I need something, and we what we're what we're I think realizing as 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 a nation, we're beginning to realize all the things we thought we were finding peace in, but they're no longer there to give us peace. And now we're having to find peace where it really, really matters. And so this step is asking a prayer from God, peace be upon your people. Verse 2 had said, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people. While I read this chapter, I actually, to be very honest with you, I read it kind of half-hearted the first time I read it in preparation this week, because I was in the back of my mind, I was like, it's Easter. I should probably go to like a more Eastery kind of a text. So I'll just read this to make sure, and then I'll go find something in the Gospels. But when I read that verse. So Yahweh surrounds his people. It was as clear as day. God's like, that is your Easter text. Because the empty tomb asks the question, where then is he? He is surrounding his people. Christ is not there. He's everywhere. He's surrounding his people. And this, this is very much a text in which God is not in—he's not social distancing. He's not, oh my goodness, the humans are six feet apart. i got to stay six feet apart. It's not that the lack of our being in the same building has somehow removed his surrounding us. God always, it says, he surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. He will always surround us. That's the beauty of the resurrection— Jesus came to earth, and you can pinpoint his location. There he is, a 30-something-year-old Jew from Galilee. He's right now walking on the Sea of Galilee. Oh, there he goes walking through Samaria. He's sitting at a well talking to a Samaritan woman. There he is in the temple mount. Oh, he just threw a table over. Wow, he's on a cross now. Throughout the Jesus story, you could geographically pinpoint him on a map. There he is, but When jesus is then laid in the tomb that is the final and last time that you could say that's where he is coordinated on the map because when he rises from the dead when god raises him from the dead suddenly it's not the jesus of nazareth pinpointed to this little plot of dirt on the earth it is now christ everywhere the ruling and reigning king not here not there but everywhere God surrounds his people because Christ was willing to come to us, to be limited by us, to be killed by us, to be laid in a tomb by us, so that God can now take charge and bring him out and his presence emanates everywhere. So much so that God has chosen to be present to us in his people and with his people in and through us. Um, he wants us to teach the world that he is here. He is here. Yeah, we don't know why this is happening or what's going on there. We can guess, we can say good's going to come out of it, but he's here. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people. But, but, What God also said to me was, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so stuff surrounds his people. Um, If you've seen one of my Bible briefs during the week or um, one of the email devotionals I wrote, you are aware that I see in this coronavirus right now, it's under... Excuse me, it's exposing another pandemic that we've been suffering for 70 years, maybe more. Uh, uh, Some people have creatively called it affluenza. It's just this pandemic of stuff, our attachment and our need for way more than we really need. All of us, especially because we're Americans, we have this way of life of stuff. Now, stuff is not a sin, stuff is not a sin. God is not somehow terrified of the materialistic world. Please know your Bible and know that Jesus became a body and he rose in a body. He's not terrified of the materialistic world. In fact, he made us to live in both the materialistic world and his spiritual world all in one. We're unfortunately only experiencing the uh, physical at the moment. But he's not terrified of the physical world. Stuff is not a sin But the abundance of stuff can become a sin when the stuff suffocates our soul. When stuff suffocates our soul, we are now in trouble. And in America, we don't necessarily endure a lot of persecution. That's where you can imagine the devil's like, that church, I'm going to get it, charge soldiers. And the church has to confront the devil on a daily basis. They're very aware of the opposition against them. But in America, we have a very different tactic that is being used against us. We're not being attacked directly. We're being lulled. We're being suffocated slowly. Yeah. Give them stuff. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Satan um, has a strategy that's very different from God's. And I want to read to you a little blurb from the Screwtape Letters. Of all the great things in that book, this one I come back to over and over and over. Um, Lewis, of course, is writing this great creative book where two demons are writing letters back and forth. So you're hearing this from the demon's perspective. And they say this. We want cattle who can finally become food. They're referring to people and their dealings with the human world. We want the people to be cattle who can finally become food. But he, God, wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our Father below, Devil, has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy, God, wants a world full of beings united to him but still distinct. And when I read that, what I hear. Is that Satan is a consumer, and he wants to treat humanity and all of God's creation like stuff to be consumed. He wants to possess it, he wants to own it, and he just wants to claim it. But God is not into, he's not this over-dominating Lord who's like, "I want this, I need this, I'm going to take it." He's not seizing things like stuff. He's redeeming creation to say, "You're not just stuff for me to consume. you." are empty vessels to be filled. You are creatures with potential and promise, and I want to breathe my life into these and send them out to expand my creativity, to expand my goodness, to expand my presence and my glory around the world. There's two very different mannerisms, and yet I fear that just as a people, and, I, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir, hopefully, the, hopefully we as Christians have been more aware of this than most, but, We have adopted Satan's lifestyle in that life is about what I can get out of it. It's what I can suck in. It's how I can fill the emptiness within me. So what we do is rather than finding ourselves at peace because God surrounds us, we have instead found an emptiness and have surrounded ourselves with stuff. There's three very obvious reasons why we do this. We surround ourselves with stuff Because we want to feel secure. Notice how the psalm tries to teach us that we can feel secure if we trust in Yahweh. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Those who trust in Yahweh are like Mount Zion. Okay, this is the most important mountain in Israel. Mountains... uh, I think it was uh, the Hobbit or something. There was a, a riddle in which it talked about like their roots going all the way into the earth. I don't remember. I'm butchering it. That's what happens when you try to say things that come to you in the moment. But mountains have a solid foundation and they're not moved. We are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And as the so that's security right there. That's permanence. That's security. That's safety. Nothing's going to come against Mount Zion. Only God can move that mountain, right? Nothing else can. And verse 2 echoes this by saying, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So we have this security, right? He's around us. But we often surround ourselves with stuff because we want to feel in our emptiness. We want to feel secure, um, we can have, we can start, maybe Maybe we have more cars than we need because it gives us a sense of security. Maybe we have more food than we need because it gives us a sense of security. Maybe we have more clothes than we need because it gives us a sense of security. It's, it's, that, it's as if we don't know who we are, what to do without things. And yet Jesus said, look at the birds the air in Matthew chapter 6. They're not worried. All they have are nests or the lilies of the field. They're not worried about their attire. All they have is what they grow with. And yet we are looking for security. Um, Maybe we're trying to accumulate an abscess of money because it gives us security. Now, please don't mishear me. There is wisdom in, of course, using stuff and having it in an appropriate way. But if we are accumulating in order to find security, we have completely missed life. God surrounds his people. He gives us security. That stuff, if if our aim in it is security, it will only suffocate us and we will feel emptier. And that's why we have to keep on accumulating more and more and more, because it isn't making us feel secure. I love what Paul said in Acts chapter 20. He's giving his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Ephesus was a city in which he wrote a great letter to, I call it the best book in the bible um he spent a lot of time in ephesus but now he knows his life's coming to an end so he talks with them one last time and he has this beautiful line which says this in acts 20 verse 24 he he addresses them and he says you know what no i'm gonna go back to verse 22 i want you to hear this context in acts 20 verse 22 he says and now ephesian elders behold I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. In other words, the Spirit is pushing me onward to Jerusalem so much, I have no other choice. i got to go to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's going to happen to me there except, 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I must go, and I know that these seemingly bad things await me. But then in verse 24, but none of these things move me. That's the new King James. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life as any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Look, I know, I don't know what lies ahead of me, but the Holy Spirit keeps warning me, be ready, Paul, it's not going to be easy. Be ready, be ready, be ready. And then the Ephesian elders, you can almost imagine like, no, what? you can't go forward if that's going to happen. You can't be in prison. Paul, you're too important. You got to protect your life. That's not the safe, secure route, Paul. It's like their faces are saying that because then Paul just breaks in and says, but none of these things move me. Paul could not be moved by life's circumstances. Paul was like Mount Zion, firmly rooted, could not be moved, established forever. Because he based his security in the resurrection of Jesus The empty tomb meant that he is no longer empty and that Christ now surrounds him. And he doesn't matter what awaits me. If I go there, Christ still surrounds me. You cannot imprison. You can't put jail bars between me and Christ. He will surround me in the deepest, darkest, remotest corner of the universe. I'll be fine. I'm not moved by these things. Even death no longer moves the Christian Because we have the security in the reality that Jesus has conquered death and we will join him in resurrected life. We don't need stuff to make us feel secure. Another reason we surround ourselves with stuff is to feel special. We want to feel special. Um, For some people, a vehicle is point A to point B. For some people, a vehicle is a status symbol because they don't feel special without it. Or it's the clothing, or it's um, the job, or the house, or you can go down the list, the type of phone you have. I get a lot of comments because I have... um, the iPhone SE its the little 5 model, and everybody thinks it's so old, so ancient, so tiny, because I don't have, like, the bigger, fancier ones with eye, facial unlocking stuff. <laughs> it's almost, it's funny how, um, at least in youth culture especially, when I teach kids, it's almost like the type of phone you have is a status symbol. It's a special symbol. Um, and I, sometimes I feel like people are belittling me. Oh, you have that one? I had that one, like, when I was a junior higher, or I had that one five years ago. We can use stuff. To make us feel special. Now in verse 3, we see the psalm saying, no, 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 don't go that route. Verse 3 says, for the scepter, ooh, the scepter. We all have scepters in our lives. That thing, that item, that title that makes us feel special. The scepter of, the, of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. It won't last. That kingdom, that special status everybody's reaching and grasping for, forget it. It's not going to last. Um, it's not going to last. And so it's almost warning the righteous, look, so don't stretch out for it. That, that phrase, stretching out their hand to do wrong, it's echoing the Garden of Eden, isn't it? As they stretched out for the fruit. We don't have to. Um, So the part that's interesting, though, is not the fact that the scepter of the right, the scepter of wickedness is going to be broken at some point. The thing that's interesting is the next line that says on the land allotted to the righteous. There's land allotted to us. So in other words, where your address is today or what you have today or who you are seen with or the job title that you have, all of these things, they're under a certain temporary rulership right now. And you don't need those things. You don't need that stuff to feel special because you and I have been given an inheritance from Christ. And part of that inheritance is actually land. The Bible is unblushing in its promises that God is going to give the land to his people, that he's going to restore it and redeem it and revive it. And as Christ was raised in a new and unique body suitable for a new and unique creation, everything around us will also be resurrected in a new and unique way suitable for a heaven and earth reunion. As it was in Eden, so it shall be to come. There is land allotted to the righteous. Didn't Jesus say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? And then Revelation talked, well, Jesus talked in some parables about um, those who are faithful with what was given to them. Those that were given the talents and were faithful. It says that he gave them, in Luke's gospel, he gave them cities to rule over in return for their faithfulness. Revelation chapter 5 says that Christ redeemed us from every tongue, tribe, and nation so that we could rule with him over the earth. We are inheriting, and then we see in um, Revelation 21, of course, the new heavens and the new earth coming down. Excuse me, the new Jerusalem coming down to the new heavens and the new earth. We don't need stuff, in other words. But here's what I fear. I fear that we have this sort of nebulous, vague idea of what the afterlife is like. That it's some like, celestial floating around with like airy boundlessness, and we're not even sure how to relate to that. And so what we end up doing is saying, but this stuff, we're gonna lose it all. I've got to see the Angels win the World Series one more time because I'll never see it again. Or we get like, these feelings of like one life to live, only now. And I think Christians can sometimes get too attached to stuff because we have a, a very strained relationship <coughs> with the material world. But consider again the resurrection. Consider. That jesus came to us in a human body he died for us a physical death and he rose from the dead he was raised from the dead in a physical body in which people could actually touch him and he could eat food and he was recognizable and yet this body did things like ascend into heaven like walk through walls in which the doors were locked and did some interesting things too Our future is one in which the material and the spiritual come together in a hybrid in a way we haven't quite yet experienced. There is a land allotted to the righteous because God is going to redeem every trace atom of his creation. He does not create to throw away. Satan throws things away. He consumes things. God redeems, restores, and resurrects. That is part of the Easter message. We don't need stuff to feel special. We simply need to know, like Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that we have been adopted, we were chosen before the foundations of the earth, and then in love he adopted us and called us sons, Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, because we're sons, we're also heirs. Sons back then would get the father's stuff. But then it says we're not just heirs, we're co-heirs of Christ. Because he's the firstborn, he would get half of, the, half of the inheritance. But we're co-heirs, so we're getting the same share he gets. We are special in our father's eyes. And we do not have to accumulate stuff to feel special. Consider this from one of uh, a a quote that has shattered my life in a good way. It's really jarred me to think differently. Uh, Thomas Merton said this. He said, I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world. It's as if I were an invisible body that could only become physical visible when something visible covered its surface. Do you hear that? He's saying in this sense, we all feel this emptiness, this hollow echo within us. And we are reaching for things as if we were invisible. And if we put enough stickers on us, we could suddenly become beings that are recognizable to ourselves and to others. Just like if you've seen the Pixar Disney film Cars, there's a nickname that the Porsche Sally uh, calls the hot rod race car Lightning McQueen. She calls them stickers as a nickname. And it's meant to symbolize you are nothing more than the stickers on your paint. And there's this like running joke about how he doesn't even have headlights, they're just stickers. Because Lightning McQueen is like a lot of us we feel invisible. We feel inferior. We feel like we're not unique and that we're not special unless we put the right stickers and patches upon us. We wrap experiences. We wrap stuff. We wrap job titles. We, we wrap pleasures. We wrap all friends and people and whatever. We wrap the stuff around us so that we can suddenly become special. But again, and the psalmist saying here, you don't have to reach out for that scepter. There is land allotted to the righteous. We are inheritors with Christ. There is a new day coming, and we will be part of the ruling party in this new day. That makes us special. (coughs) Third reason that we surround ourselves with stuff. First, it's because we want to feel secure. Second, we want to feel special. But third, we want to feel successful. We want to feel successful. As if the amount of stuff I can accumulate is a tally for how much better I am than I thought I was, or than my dad said I was, and than other people said I was. It's proof I am successful. But I think you know well that that's not how God measures success. Um, We remember when David was coming to be anointed by the prophet Samuel, and Samuel was looking for that king of Israel, and he saw the tallest son, and he was, he, was, um, he was the firstborn son. He was like the tallest, he was the most handsome. He was like, surely that is the king. And then God whispered to Samuel's heart and said, Samuel, Samuel, do not look on outer appearances as man looks, for I look at the heart. Success lies elsewhere. So look at, look at verse 4 and 5. It says, do good, O Yahweh, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts or who are in tune with your purposes. So although this is a prayer, God do good to these people, it's also implying, isn't it? It's an invitation to, hey, be one of those people so that God can do good to you. Now, a real quick footnote here. (laughs) This is not saying that um, everything God does is a cause and effect thing. I do good things, he gives me good things. I do bad things, he takes them away. That's not how it works. What it is, and that's why I love the second line that's clarifying everything for those who are upright in their hearts. In other words, if you are in line with the good God, you will have a good life. That's just obvious. But in verse five, if you decide to go the other way, if you decide to take the, the hard road, the one with thorns and thistles and briars, you can expect a loss or a lack of good things. Not that God's going to say, how dare you? I'm taking that away from you. We had a deal. Not like that. It's rather that you're walking away from what is good, or you're aligning yourself with that which is good. Okay, so just to clarify that, So now the psalm is giving us this choice. Which path are you going to take? Are you going to align yourself with the God who's surrounding you? Or are you going to say, I'm going to break out of this prison and go do my own thing? I'm pointing this out here in terms of success. Because for many of us, we do not define success as that which happens internally between us and God. God is looking for people who are growing up into sons who look like him. That to God is success. But the world isn't looking for that, and the world doesn't care about that. And if anything, the world's saying, oh yeah, as long as you make sure you tell us that you did that to yourself, you changed yourself, you did all the right disciplines and the right steps, and teach us your ways, you hacked life. We surround ourselves with stuff because we want to feel successful. I think because in our emptiness, we fear that we are failures. We fear that we're not living up to some sort of standard. And we think that stuff is going to answer that. I want to read to you guys one last quote. from. It's an actual quote from a shopper. This comes from that book, Affluenza. This shopper says this, I like to think I shop because I don't want to look like everybody else, but the real reason is because I don't want to look like myself. I fear I shop because I don't want to look like myself. Then this part. It's easier to buy something new and feel good about yourself than it is to change yourself. I don't like myself. I don't want to look like myself because I'm empty. And to fix that, it's easier to buy stuff or to attach associations or statuses to ourselves than it is to change ourselves. That, what she said, is so true to our culture. I would just add one thing. God is not asking us to change ourselves. He's asking us to let him change us. But it's still true. It is far easier to buy something, gain something, have an experience, a pleasure, and to feel good about ourselves through those cheap, quick, and easy routes than it is to go down the hard path of ascension where you've got to climb the next step. You've got to feel the ache in your thighs. You've got to wipe the sweat off your brow and beat back the gnats and scratch at the mosquito bites and feel the sunburn and feel the hunger pains. You've got to keep... That's how... These are the means in which God will come and change us when we're walking his path. But that doesn't feel like success. It doesn't feel like success in the land we're living in. What we need to understand, though, is that our emptiness does not need more stuff to find success. It needs to allow God to come in and make us upright in heart with him. That is the path to success. (coughs) So, These are the ways the psalm is saying this is how we find peace in our emptiness. This is how we find peace. The word peace we often think of as tranquility. It's like, hmm, it's nice out. But the Hebrew word is so much richer than that. It's the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom refers more to, it's hard to interpret just as peace. It refers to this big idea. Shalom is the rich, integrated, relational wholeness that we receive when the world is right. The rich, integrated, relational wholeness. When I see shalom, yes, peace, but I also think that peace and wholeness become synonymous here. If you want to think of it this way, peace is the opposite of pieces, and our lives are often lived in pieces. We're this person here, that person there. we got to fit this. We're kind of being pulled in different ways, but shalom brings those pieces into one piece, wholeness, peace. That's what shalom's dealing with here. And so, um, this In our emptiness, it's giving us this invitation to wholeness, to fullness of life. So, I want to finish tonight by taking us over to John chapter 20. Just a real quick look at one of your more classic Easter passages, John chapter 20. Because I think this is what we need to do. If emptiness drives us to surround ourselves with stuff in order to feel secure, special, or successful, then what we need to understand is that actually Christ is the one that's causing us to feel feel secure, special, and successful. Because he has surrounded us. He's with us. He's conquered so many things. And he's giving us the shalom, the peace, the wholeness, the fullness of life. He's giving that to us so that we don't have to feel emptiness And that the Christian should be the sort of person who can sit quietly in a room alone and feel no emptiness. Because you're never without the eternal presence of the one surrounding you. Um, So, we should be frequent visitors to the empty tomb. Not just on Easter. Look, he's risen. He's not here. But to always remind ourselves that the empty tomb is the source of the full life. The tomb is empty so that my life doesn't have to be. The tomb is empty so that Christ can fill me. And as um, Psalm chapter 16, I love these verses. You hold your spot in John 20, but Psalm chapter 16 says this, that God makes known to us the path of life, and in his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's given us the path to life. The empty tomb has secured this fullness of joy, this pleasures forevermore. Jesus, in John chapter 10, just a couple chapters before John 20, told all the people that, look, the thief comes to rob, steal, kill, and destroy, like Lewis said about Satan, right? Seeking to consume, to take, to absorb into himself if he comes to steal, rob, kill, and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and to have life abundantly. Life abundantly. The tomb is empty so that I don't have to be. The tomb is empty so that I can have wholeness and peace. So we need to visit the empty tomb to remind ourselves that there is no more emptiness outside the tomb. And that if I'm going to continue to live an empty life, I am going to be embalming myself with my stuff and my status and my things in my own tomb. Notice also the empty tomb is very different than, um, I might butcher the name, but King Tutankhamen's tomb. Remember King Tut when they discovered his Egyptian tomb in 1922, and it was one of the only tombs that hadn't been broken into, so we got to see what was actually in an Egyptian pharaoh's tomb, and it's full of treasures. King Tut's tomb was loaded with treasure, because even in death, he needed his stuff. I fear that we visit the empty tomb only to bring our stuff with us and we cram it all into that tomb when easter's about saying let it go the tomb is empty so that your life can be full well they hear wait the stone's been rolled away from mary so james and john race each other to the tomb in john chapter 20 verse 8 um Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So Peter and John, the disciple in Jesus' love, they're racing, and they both get there, and then they look in. Of course, there's this funny thing about who got there first and who was the faster one, but that's another Easter message. They both look into the tomb, and it's almost like they're freaked out by its emptiness. Like, oh dear, it's empty, let's go back home. And I fear that's sometimes what we do too. Let's go back to our stuff. It's empty out there, let's go back to our stuff. But Mary lingers. Mary in verse 11 stood weeping outside the tomb. She was totally fine being alone and quiet near an empty tomb. And then Jesus appears to her, as you would read further on in the text, and she says Mary and she recognizes his voice and she sees him. But then on verse in verse 19, this is where this is what I love um Jesus eventually comes to all of them. It says, John twenty nineteen, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the coronavirus, <coughs> excuse me, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Here are the disciples living one of the emptiest moments of their lives, and now the tomb is empty and they think everything's hopeless, and they've locked themselves in their home. You see that? This is us today. They are in full-on lockdown. And yet in this lockdown, in the midst of this emptiness, Jesus comes even when they weren't looking for him. He comes And he surrounds them, like the psalm says. Yahweh surrounds his people. Even in the locked house, he's surrounding his disciples. And he says to them, as our psalm does, peace be upon you, peace be upon Israel. May wholeness, peace, shalom, rich, integrated, relational wholeness, when the world is set God's way, may that be upon you, friends, brothers and sisters. Because this is what Easter is about. It's about as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Christ surrounds us. So we don't need stuff to feel secure. We don't need stuff to feel special. We don't need stuff to feel successful because all that's going to do is it's going to suffocate the life that Christ came to give us and squeeze it right out of our soul. And so here's the irony, in our emptiness and in seeking cheap ways to fill it, we are actually draining ourselves of any fullness. We are becoming emptier by trying to fill the empty tomb with junk. It's empty, it's empty, it's empty, so that we don't have to be. So let us sit with our Christ. Let us see that his tomb is empty. Let's hear his voice. Let's let him appear in our midst. Let us feel him surround us and say, peace be upon you, my son, my daughter. We don't need this just now because of the season we're living in. We need this always. And I believe that we are right now given this glorious opportunity where we are almost forced to sit before the empty tomb to learn what we really need in life. So, brothers and sisters, Christ surrounds us, let him. And let's remove the clutter that gets in the way. Let's pray.